This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Afropolitans, we are still living in the grip of COVID-19 and also in the cold confines of a lockdown and more recently load shedding in South Africa. So I imagine it may be very difficult for some of us now to look beyond the present. But we do know that one way or another, there will be a post-coronavirus world. And this is the world that we need to start thinking about and shaping even today. Do we go back to what we had as best we can? Or do we seize this opportunity to shape a new and a more inclusive society in a more sustainable and equitable world. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. My name is Asitolen and this is a podcast that is brought to you by KFM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Today our focus is going to be on really the issue of information. We know that in recent times the quality of information that we get from the medium versus the quality of information that we get from alternative media platforms, whether it's social media or something like that, may differ and sometimes may even be dangerous. So we know that never before in the history of humanity have citizens have had such free access to so much information. The problem, of course, with this access to information is that some of the filters that we are traditionally used to, the editorial process in traditional newspapers, for example, may no longer be there. So if that is going to be our new reality, how do we then ensure that the information that does get disseminated out to society is indeed the right information that does not cause harm. I've got two guests that are going to be joining me for this conversation. First one is Professor Anton Haber, who's a Caxton Professor of Journalism at Wits University, and I also have Mr. Dean Whitting, who's a Chief Editor for Africa. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Professor Haber, I'd like to start with you first. I mean, if we were having this conversation 20, 25 years ago, dear God, it would have been a very different conversation. We would have been talking around a few well-known print media titles and perhaps a couple of radio and TV stations. But the world of media right now has evolved at perhaps a much faster pace than any other sector in the past five to ten years. That's absolutely true. It's a completely different world, and it has many advantages uh, in that general access to media is much wider, it's much more diverse. Uh, you don't have gatekeepers, uh, powerful editors who are able, rightly or wrongly, to decide what you read and what you see and what you hear. But it also has very severe downsides. Without gatekeepers, it means you have as much disinformation and misinformation and malinformation than ever before. Um, so the changes have, have empowered people in many ways, uh, but also flooded us with uh, disinformation. Professor, I mean, what exactly is the difference between those three types that you mentioned? You've said disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation, but I think they tend to manifest in quite different ways. Can you just elaborate on really what the three uh, different dimensions are? Yes, because I think it's an important distinction. Misinformation is wrong information, and uh, it's it, it can be a mistake made by a newspaper. It can be something that gets perpetuated that's untrue, that gets challenged later on. Um, uh, so we've always uh, had misinformation, and it's something we can deal with. Disinformation is information that um, is deliberately wrong. Uh, but malinformation is when it's malignantly 
put out there to disrupt democracy, to mislead people, to cause racial tension, to exacerbate uh, divisions in our society. Um, so you have to differentiate. We have a problem with a lot of wrong information, disinformation that gets out there. But the real problem we have is when it's put out there malignly by people to make money or to cause harm. So we see some uh, governments, for example, uh, using malinformation to undermine their opponents, to mess with democracy, to cause division in society. Yeah, I think those uh, the, the distinctions are quite critical because I think for a lot of people, it's simply a matter of we are still very reliant on the information that we see. And some of us don't even bother to look at maybe even the date stamp, don't even bother to look at the source and even the links. You, you just see them and somebody's put together a couple of paragraphs and it looks like a story. We just take it on its worth. So I think it's quite important for us to actually understand the distinction. Lee, I'd like to bring you to the conversation here. I mean, an organization like Africa Check probably didn't have a business model 10, 15, 20 years ago when the type of media sources that we were consuming were the type of media sources that rightly or wrongly could at least fight for their information, could vet their information, and we could always link the information that is in the public domain to the source and hold people accountable. I suspect over the past five to 10 years, the business model of Africa Check has evolved quite monumentally. Yes, um, I would like to say probably we are occupying a space that has been um, vacated by the media because of dwindling resources. We've seen a lot of media houses struggle to um, invest in skills such as fact-checking and training. So this has given rise to the kind of work we do as fact-checkers, which is essentially looking to verify the accuracy of information. So um, you are right, there has been quite a growth in the fact-checking community. Um, last I checked, there are almost 200 global fact checkers around the world and it is um, um, it is something that is growing with with every passing week or month so probably you could say one we are a product of the um, dwindling fortunes of the media houses but also there is an element of the need for um, our services in terms of there's a lot of internet and that also means there's a lot of misinformation and so we try to come in as a bridge between um, consumers of information and publishers. Professor Haber, I mean, um, Lee talks to perhaps this being the inevitable consequence of the decline of the media industry at large. But I think a lot of people would say, you know, some of the issues that we see in relation to the declining faith in, tradi in traditional media houses is probably self-imposed because some people would say, look, we actually used to trust this particular publication, but after a long series of history of wave, we actually decided to no longer trust them. And of course, this then creates a type of loss of trade of faith in the traditional media houses that would mean that anyone with an alternative which doesn't sound like the media house have just rejected on the basis of a story that they were found on the wrong side of means that actually alternative platforms do find it much easier to thrive when there's a general loss of faith in the traditional media structures so you're quite right that under under financial pressure newsrooms have been shrinking for at least the last 10 years maybe 20 years um, and that has led to many of them 
doing things that have led to a loss of trust. So there has been a deterioration, a diminishing of the mainstream media over this period of time. Not all of it. There have been titles that have kept and maintained and built up a great deal of trust and journalists who have done that. So it's not across the board, but certainly there's some that have damaged themselves. I am writing at the moment or just finishing and about to publish a book about um, South African media that looks at the role the media played in state capture. And there's no doubt some of what had been our most trusted media um, did harm, incredible harm to themselves by spreading misinformation around the issues of state capture. But the critical thing is, you know, we've always had misinformation and we've always had disinformation. There's no question, this is not something new. But what has happened is that social media has given it um, legs, shall we say. It's made it much easier, much quicker for people to disseminate and share and spread false information because we don't have the gatekeepers. Traditional media had gatekeepers who checked or whose job it was, editors whose job it was to check and verify and tell you if something was true or not. And they didn't always succeed and they didn't always do it well. But if you knew them and you trusted them, that's what they did. The thing about social media is there's no gatekeepers. Um, so disinformation and misinformation and malinformation gets at least the same coverage and sometimes more coverage and weight and attention than real information and real news and verified stuff. I mean, that, that Professor Hubbard talks to the role of gatekeepers, and of course, in a traditional media setup, the gatekeepers then also had accountability. A lot of people would argue that you know the one benefit of you know breaking down traditional structures is that the fluidity of information is something that we all celebrate. So the uh, traditional newspaper that would have been published in a foreign country, I would have had access to it in the absence of you know the internet age. So of course, that at least breaks down the information barriers, enables us to get access to the information. But again, the key problem that remains that should we then have the type of gatekeepers in the social media space, in the internet, in the internet media space that then are reflective of the role that gatekeepers used to play in the traditional setup? We have the media who are struggling with um, resources. As Professor has mentioned, there has been a shrinkage in, in what they are able to invest in this traditional role of gatekeeping. Um, and, and you would want these to be strengthened and, and, and in the absence of the resources to do this then you'd want our media to collaborate with those who specialize in this because um, you are right the um, social I mean the social internet and, and the internet as a whole has democratized information and and, and in a way, there are those who look to exploit the cleavages that come with this democratization of information because um, there are various reasons why people look to um, peddle misinformation and, and, and I think this speaks to the need for us to strengthen the role of gatekeeping. Um, there are reasons, there are motives of financial gain. We have those who are focused on clickbait or other techniques of driving traffic to sites for purposes of monetizing or those that look to convince you, for example, to false posits. We have um, motives of political gain. We see this around elections or events of internationalism. We have um, the motives of social or psychological 
for instance, uh, people look good or smart, or maybe for a sense of belonging, or um, maybe what they're peddling is tied towards furthering the interests of a particular identity. So also there are those who, so sorry, Prof? Sorry, can I pick up on, 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 on what you said, uh, Kaya? Yes. Um, uh, Ali makes a very important point, but we can't go back to the old kind of gatekeeping. We don't want to go back to the situation where all powerful editors can uh, can make decisions about what we know and what we don't know and what we hear and what we don't hear. Social media has broken that down and that's a good thing. But what we do need is we absolutely need the platforms, the major social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram um, to take responsibility for their content. The point is that in, in, in traditional media, the owners, the editors, the journalists took responsibility for the content, whereas the, the owners and managers of the likes of Facebook have not taken sufficient responsibility and therefore have allowed it to be used to spread racism, to spread hate speech, um, and to be abused by foreign countries to interfere with democracies and elections and voting. Yes, I want to come back to you, but I also yes. want you to then deal with the question of is there a line between censorship and you know the freedom of speech, particularly in instances where Facebook says, well, once we start reading the content of Kaya's posts, it means that we might be engaging in censorship. If Kaya feels like saying that Anton Harbour should not be on Facebook for whatever reason is, that's Kaya exercising his freedom of speech. Do we need to actually find the balance between what some people might say actually censorship might be the issue here or freedom of speech is unlimited? Um, I probably want to start off by jumping from the point Prof made about um, social media platforms. And I think we are probably being a bit naive in expecting them to either take responsibility for the content that is peddled on them because they have a business model that is built on engagement and, 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 and um, short of other forces, you know, um, traditional media, for example, strengthening or looking to rebuild trust in these platforms or investing in checking. I don't think we can leave that role to um, social media platforms. But uh, coming to your second point about um, censorship, I think um, it's 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 a fine line. But I am always a person who says let's have more accurate information rather than looking to regulate um, the information that is available to people and I don't know if Prof has a different view to this Look, I, I agree that uh, we want to keep as much freedom of speech as we can, but we do not want to allow people to use these platforms to spread hate speech uh, and to disrupt our democracies. We can't, I think, tolerate uh, racism, for example, to be propagated on these platforms. Uh, we, 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 we never have absolute freedom of speech. Um, but we do want as much freedom of speech as possible. So I'm not suggesting that you necessarily ban these voices. But for example, um, you do need to um, 
label them, for example, to show when something is not true. And that's where an organization like Africa Check becomes incredibly important to fact check and label things when they're untrue and make people aware if they're untrue. But I do think that, that extreme cases, for example, of propagating uh, hatred and nationalism and, 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 for example, white nationalism should not be tolerated on these platforms and that we should be pushing um, the likes of Facebook and Twitter to, um, to act against them. Uh, Professor, I think some of the pushback that you might get from that is that a lot of people will then say, look, when I post something, I expect it to be immediately available. And of course, it's a question of resources. Would a platform like Facebook, for example, be able to put together a team of people that can monitor the tweets that are, well, the Facebook posts that I might do in any language or even in a vernacular language to then say, well, actually, we feel that this is trans uh, transversing onto hate speech, for example. What is the definition of hate speech in a uh, Universal a world where so many languages are spoken, where the nuances of what I might say, or perhaps uh, the, the implications of what I might say in one jurisdiction, are quite different in another jurisdiction. I mean, can they legitimately come back and say we quite simply don't have the resources to pick up all of these things? So until somebody raises to us and until somebody elevates it to our awareness, we quite simply are going to let it fester on the social media space. Look, you're quite right that these issues are complicated, and one doesn't want to oversimplify them. Um, but it's not true to say that they could have resource problems. Facebook has all the resources it needs to develop the technology and to employ the people to do the work if they want to. The problem has been that they don't want to do it. They've been forced to do it to some extent, uh, but the problem is they don't, they don't want to take responsibility for content that they're carrying. Now, I agree, we've got to be very careful that we don't impinge on freedom of speech. But we also have to be very careful not to allow hatred and hate speech and malinformation to, 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 to just run wildly. What are your views on that? I mean, uh, Facebook is going to come back and say, uh, come on, guys, South Africa, for example, 11 different languages, slang being I mean, the language that people use out there, we quite simply cannot possibly be expected to monitor all of this. Is that a valid defense? I think there is a defense to that in terms of there are lots of nuances, there are a lot of cultural differences in various countries. And this is why I, for example, say our role as fact checkers is to look to break inaccurate, to break accurate information out of the current ivory towers, for example, we operate in because um, we have communities that are quite vulnerable that um, don't have access to information and, 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 and they tend to be quite affected by uh, bad information. So if we can um, come up with ways that look to complement what these social platforms can do, whether that means translating, for example, um, good information into various languages or working with community leaders because that has been shown to have more of an impact, I think it calls for a more collaborative effort rather than um, just hoping against hope that the biggest platforms do something. 
Professor Harper, you probably saw a couple of weeks ago, suddenly Facebook said, actually, we're not going to be in the process of censorship. We're not going to censor the statements of, you know, Donald Trump's supporters, for example, and his lobby groups. And then suddenly, when we then saw a couple of the big corporates saying, well, if you're not going to do anything about this, we will simply stop advertising. And suddenly, that seemed to have changed the narrative. I was still facing a situation where it's still going to be the capital and the allocation of capital and the question of who has the capital that actually intervenes or changes or even alters the discourse in a matter that is of fund fundamental importance to all of us, even those of us that don't have deep pockets. Look, I, I think it's an excellent thing that, um, that big companies, that capital is saying, look, we don't want to be associated with hate speech and with disinformation and, if, and, and therefore we're pulling back. I think that pressure on these platforms, whether it's from big corporates or from ordinary users like you and me, uh, whether it's from public campaigners and activists to make them take responsibility um, for hate speech and disinformation, um, I think that's a good thing. I think Lee is right that it's not just a case of making them take responsibility. I think that is important. But in fact, everyone has to take responsibility. So I think the nature of social media is that we really have to, and Africa Check does a lot of this, we really have to give people the tools and the knowledge and the skills to differentiate, to understand how media works and differentiate between truth and falsity. Uh, because it is up to every user, every citizen to make those decisions for themselves. I mean, when Professor Harper says it's up to every user and, and, you know, every person on a social media platform to actually make the decisions for themselves, my fear is that far too many people that actually use social media do not really understand the essence of complicity. So I'm going to go on Twitter right now, see a story that interests me, and then simply retweet it, make it viral, spread it to the next person, another person clicks on it, and suddenly it's this topical story only for one person to come back and say, well, hold on, actually, none of this is factually correct. But by that time, the damage done to Professor Harper that we're gossiping about, to Lee that we're spreading false rumors about, the damage may simply be too much to contain at that stage. And there's not much recourse that, you know, you or I can have against the person who initiated it. How do we deal with this problem? I, I think um, it's important to build a critical mass of people who know about misinformation. And this is why I like the concept of uh, media literacy campaigns. There's only so much platforms can do. There's only so much fact checkers can do. There's only so much media organizations can do. But if we can build the capacity of people to be able to take a step back and say, okay, this is something I'm about to share. What do I need to know about it? Because I've, I've, from my experience, what I've learned is that the best skill, the best tool against misinformation is the person, the ability to pause before sharing um, anything, because it's not the easiest thing to do. A lot of misleading content is designed to be shared with it, but this simple step really goes a long way towards breaking virality or chains of misinformation. So what this allows you to do is take a step back and interrogate the information you have seen and ask 
ask yourself all manner of questions. So what is the interest? There? What are the agendas at play? Does this information trigger you? Because then um, we do know, for example, we have an emotional or illogical relationship with information. It if it reinforces our our worldviews or beliefs, then we are less likely to be critical of it and more likely to share. So if we can build um, a big mass of people who are aware of the ills of misinformation, and there are many, then I think we have a better chance of um, at least holding the line against what we see in terms of um, misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. Yeah, but I think, Lee, I suppose the overriding problem is when do people actually know or do they even have the ability to distinguish between proper information and misinformation itself? Because I think in, in, in some instances, it's not, you know, out of bad intentions. A person reads an article and in the absence of any alternative viewpoint or perhaps even the ability to know where to look for an alternative or a corroboration that they just take it as a gospel truth and on they go. I think this is why it's important to differentiate, as Prof did at the start, the different types of misinformation, so that then you know how to deal with what particular piece of misinformation you are seeing. If it's if it's misinformation, we do know people are trying to either help um, their families or you know keep their loved ones safe. So um, we can look to research into what works better. Should government, for example, be better at messaging? We've seen a lot of messages that has been problematic, for example, around masks or around lockdowns. But then again, if you can look at disinformation, then that is a deliberate intent to mislead, and then that means you are able to look at what are the motives which I tried to break down earlier? What are the motives different actors have for spreading different types of disinformation? Then, um, and then say this intervention works better than this particular intervention. Professor Haber, are we perhaps overestimating the ability of social media users to really make the distinction between, again, accurate information and uh, a misinformation, and perhaps the, um, the blend of the two, because in some cases the story has a picture, the story starts off with factual information, and then because we know that you and I or any other social media is then able to add or edit the information, then that's when the dodgier aspects of it then can then creep in. Are we really then expecting a general social media user to be able to distinguish between that? And if not, what really can we do beyond just a, a campaign that says, guys, please read properly? Because for far too many people, reading with the best intentions will not alert them to the fact that actually that particular statement, that particular paragraph is not in line with what is known out there. It is not, not, not in line with the facts. So therefore, please hold off from sharing it until you know better. You ask an important question because we know that sometimes the most effective malinformation is based on elements of the truth. So it's most effective when somebody takes a story that's half true and then embellishes it to serve their 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 malicious ends. Um, and that is hard for people to pick up. But I have a basic faith in people that if they have the tools, if they have the knowledge, if they have the skills, uh, then they will instinctively learn to understand when, when to be suspicious of something or when to believe it. I think we, we, it can, we, we have to in, introduce much higher levels of training in media literacy in our schools, our universities, our factory floors, um, our existing media, uh, because it is essential that people have 
the tools and the knowledge and the skills to, to check facts, to be skeptical. Um, um, and we'll never get it 100%. You, you're quite right. But um, these are very important skills that should really become a fundamental part of our general education. Yeah, and I suspect the missed opportunity was that no one took the view long before social media exploded to say, what if a phenomenon like this had to take hold and become a central player in how we share and disseminate information and perhaps design the type of school curriculum or even university curriculum that is then responsive to the reality that we face today. But here we are. And I think, Professor, we have to then try and figure out that, you know, particularly in times of crisis and particularly in times of great anxiety, I think the risk of misinformation is perhaps not just something going viral, but the fact that people may take particularly important decisions on the basis of what they think, rightly or wrongly, is the right information. And I suspect in this case, the Donald Trump conversation is inevitable because perhaps he is the ultimate exhibit or the illustration of what happens when information is manipulated or redirected to actually influence outcomes. They may not be to the best interest of society at large. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, we're seeing the terrible, terrible consequences of America having a president who has trouble uh, holding his grasp on reality, who 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 has uh, at last count um, uh, given tens of thousands of, uh, of of false statements every day. Every time he speaks, he opens his mouth, and the result. The impact is that is that is that his thin grasp on reality means that um, COVID is not being treated the way it needs to be treated in the U.S. and people are dying as a result. So it's a real illustration of how when you don't respect truth, you don't respect facts, uh, it kills people. Africa Check is an organization that has occasionally come out and said to us as South Africans in particular, by the way, watch out for that story. That is factually incorrect. But I think it would be foolhardy to expect all of you to become the permanent guardians of the Internet. So what happens in instances like the Donald Trump situation in the United States, for example, where a particular story gains traction and people make critical and even sometimes life changing decisions on the basis of that information only for us to discover much later on that such information was actually incorrect. What exactly can be the solution to that conundrum, which you know definitely exists? I think it's important to understand different environments. Um, in fact, checking, we've seen some attempts at one-size-fits-all approaches towards you know, um, surfacing accurate information. But you need to understand a particular region, a particular country. For example, what are the forces that brought Donald Trump to power? If you can understand who his supporters are, what their um, forces are, what they identified with, and, and, and then it allows you to speak to those people in a language that they understand, you know. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm always keen on understanding every specific country, for example, in which Africa Check works, what are the privileges that are um, at play? What are the political factors? What are the disparities? Because then when you understand how 
information and misinformation plays in one country, then I think you are able to understand how to better approach it. So uh, those people who elected Donald Trump, they have their reasons. And then again, you'd want to see what created that space for him to um, ascend to the presidency. So I think understanding um, different environments is um, very important if you are going to uh, raise the profile of the that's very important. Afropolitans, we are talking about beyond coronavirus, life after the pandemic. We are obviously engaged in the latest in our series of podcasts that are sponsored by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. And today we are focusing on social media and fake news. I am speaking to Professor Anton Haber, who is a Caxton Professor of Journalism at Wits University, and also Mr. Liam Witty, who is the Chief Editor of Africa Check. And we've been reflecting on really the, the, the boom in social media and, of course, fake news, which has become a very, very fundamental part of social media as we know it. And earlier on, Professor Harbour spoke to the role of gatekeepers that used to exist in traditional media, which we probably cannot have to the same level now that the media landscape has evolved and the exchange of information has evolved to such an extent. But Professor Harbour, there was an interesting turn of events, if I may call it that, last year, where we saw a lot of um, individuals coming out and saying that, look, we've actually been victimized sexually by this particular individual. And this happened through the use of what we refer to as an anonymous uh, profile. So I can set up a profile and say to you, Anton, if you have an issue, put it, uh, uh, send it to me in private and then I'll put it out there on the platform. But of course, when I then put it up on the platform, I then attach the face of Lee and say, look, I've been given information that Lee was guilty of, or, or at least implicated in harassing a particular individual. The problem, of course, is that when Lee wants to then say, actually, that was a me, or at least I want to get insights into who's accusing me of this so I can reconcile my actions versus what I'm being accused of, then it becomes very difficult for me to get access to that information because, hey, an anonymous account that I created specifically for this purpose no longer exists. Surely such a vacuum of accountability is not desirable? Uh, you're quite right. It's not desirable and it can do a tremendous damage to individuals and organizations and companies and groups of people. Um, uh, when 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 social media can be abused in that way, I think it does raise questions about transparency. Um, should they allow accounts that are totally anonymous, or should one be forced to take responsibility for things one says in social media? Because. Um, if one can identify who said those things or who's responsible for the site, then ordinary criminal law and civil law will will take responsibility for holding that person accountable. But people who can go on social media platforms anonymously and spread hate, well, that's a real problem that we have to confront. And maybe I can add that there is quite a debate around in the fact-checking community that is it enough to just highlight that a particular piece of information is false or is fake or whatever you may call it. Maybe we should also focus on the actors. What are the networks who is benefiting from um, being anonymous, who is running a network of sock puppets, for example. So uh, maybe we should also look focus on actors in addition to what this information we are seeing. 
the, the role of actors is quite important, but does this also not perhaps reflect a general loss of faith in traditional law enforcement agencies? Because you would have thought that the type of issues that we saw, particularly in that campaign around trying to expose perpetrators of sexual violence, that would have been something that ordinarily the law enforcement agencies would have taken care of. And of course, as a person is convicted, then we're not, not running the same risk of exposing a person unfairly without giving them the right to reply or the right to be able to then rebut the story. And I think that general loss of faith in law enforcement agencies, particularly in a country like South Africa, may just provide fertile ground for the rise of fake news as we've seen. And I think also perhaps if you want to reflect on even now when the risk of people spreading fake news could be a loss of life when COVID-19 is the pandemic. These are the issues that we need to be able to find a way to deal with differently. Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, if people feel the authorities um, or the governments are not looking out for their interests, then there is a vacuum that will occur. And um, different players, different um, information actors step into that vacuum for whatever interest they have. And, and so it's very important for governments to be seen be upholding the rights of people because if you infringe on those, then it means you have a lot of disgruntled people who may obviously look for alternative um, alternative sources of um, authentication, people who identify with their gripes and grouses with, with what they feel is wrong with their lives. So um, this is obviously fertile ground for actors to whip up that um, sentiment, that, that, um, that grouse that people may have against um, certain right that has not been met, you know, or, you know, you've not had a certain service provided to you. So it's important governments strengthen their um, role of providing what they promise to citizens. Professor Haber, your comments on just uh, loss of faith in law enforcement agencies and how it provides fertile ground for perhaps disinformation and, and, and fake news to really proliferate. Well, of course, we're, uh, you're absolutely right. When the institutions that we rely on to uh, uphold the rule of law are weak or dysfunctional or don't do their job, then it, it, it causes problems throughout the society and, uh, and, and, and we have to live with and deal with that. Uh, but let me say that, you know, you know, the one thing we have to do to stop disinformation is rebuild the institutions of truth-telling. In other words, the gap is opened up by the, the weakness of our reliable, credible, solid media and journalism. And to, the best way to counter disinformation is with truthful, credible, verified real information. So part of it is what Africa Check does, for example, but we also need to think about how we rebuild uh, a, a media world that gives us journalists and, and outlets that we can trust and that we can favor uh, in what we consume and use them to counter the flow of disinformation. 
that's why some might say that we can no longer afford the type of things that you're asking for, credible journalism, because what we now know is that with the rise of alternative media houses, that would meant, uh, or at least media platforms, it meant that the traditional media houses were now competing against somebody who could simply just click and put an article out there without having to invest in the resources necessary to run a newsroom, for example. And of course, in us then being given these alternatives, we no longer have an appetite to buy the print media title. And when people put up paywalls, well, we simply don't bother to buy them because I'm going to get the information from another source on social media anyway. Is this been the vicious cycle in which the media fraternity finds itself in? Um, what you say is important and true. The fact is that, but, but, but the truth is we can't afford not to have trustworthy, verified uh, information and journalism and news media. As a society, if we don't have that, then we're not equipped to make the decisions about our economy, our society, our democracy. We're not equipped as citizens to be actively involved because we don't have the information that we need to make decisions and decide who to vote for and what shape our economy should take and what changes are needed in the way we run our society. So we can't afford not to have it. The old way we paid for good journalism, it's true, we, that doesn't work anymore. There's no doubt we have to find new ways to make it work because, because our democracy, our economy, our society can't afford not to have reliable, solid, trustworthy information. Your views on that one? I think a lot of people are saying, well, I no longer need to buy a newspaper because I'm going to get the information anyway. And of course, the ones that are in a position to offer it for free, the ones that don't have to invest in the type of things associated with fact-checking, verification, and even ensuring that the story has merit. Is this the type of vicious cycle that society finds itself in? I think probably one way of approaching this is to then um, follow where audiences are getting their news, are getting their information. And we've seen, for example, um, messaging spaces like WhatsApp have been quite popular with people. And we've seen a number of media houses tried to experiment with putting information on these spaces before obviously they ran into terms and conditions associated with WhatsApp. But what we do find is it's important to, to innovate, try new ways of targeting your audiences because, as you said, there may be a shift towards freer information. So where are the audiences shifting to? And then see if you can engage them in those kind of spaces. So, for example, after Africa Check, we do a number of innovations around WhatsApp. We crowdsource this information and we get um, it's almost a good signal or what we're going to see on um, information but difficult track because of obviously the encrypted nature of WhatsApp so I think the key thing is then to see what are the audiences now looking at where are they looking for I mean finding the information and then see if you can something that appeals to them in that space in terms of information.
That's an important intervention. I mean, Professor Habam, we now know that we are living through perhaps the most difficult time in human history. And I think what makes it even more difficult is the fact that information itself is so fluid and changing every single day. At some point in time, masks were the way to go, then masks were not the way to go. At some point in time, children were encouraged to go to school and then schools were being shut down. And I think for me, what really creates a particular problem with um, the COVID-19 pandemic is the fact that there isn't a single standalone, you know, credible source of information that everybody can say until that agency or until that institution verifies or corroborates that information, then we are going to take it with a pinch of salt. And for me, the risk associated with that is that you can see stories emerging, gaining traction. I saw one yesterday that claimed that in Russia there was a vaccine trial that had been completed and people were then celebrating the story and I simply asked a simple question of what is the source? And then when you read the source, you then realize, oh, actually, there's a lot more gaps here than there ought to be. And I think in times of crisis, perhaps the risk that we're facing is even more amplified when fake news is still unregulated, when we still have platforms like Twitter and Facebook that say, if a person thinks so, it's their opinion. We are not in the responsibility of, of, of regulating or censoring opinions. Surely in a time like this, that duty of such institutions is much greater than it would be in any other time. Oh, there's no question because lives are at stake. Look, truth is always complicated and it's always disputed and uh, there's never one version of it. And so you want diverse views um, that you can, uh, that you should never rely on one source, on one outlet, on one journalist, on one, on one newspaper. You always have to consume and weigh up and be skeptical and, uh, and, and know that there, that there is seldom one version of truth that, that you want. But the real danger is, mis is malinformation. It's when it's maliciously spread uh, to serve malicious political and uh, divisive purposes. That's the real danger. Um, and against that, we certainly need action and, and uh, intervention and regulation and education because um, it, it can destroy our democracy and it can break up our economy and it can uh, cause deep divisions in our society. The divisions in our society are definitely a risk that we're facing. At Africa Check, have you seen particular incidences associated with just the COVID-19 pandemic of information that was so completely inaccurate, you had to go out and say, oh, by the way, whereas Africa Check, you've looked into this, this is definitely not the case, or it is the case. I, I think the one one surprising thing we found is um, just before I answer the question is we're expected to be dealing a lot with false claims about cures and prevention. Um, but what we found was the overwhelming type of misinformation was manipulated or out of context videos and images and articles. And, and, and this speaks to something Prof mentioned earlier that that information that has the most trajectory is that that has a kernel of truth in it. So um, you've obviously got a lot of people who are one feeling powerless because society has changed drastically in a very short time. There's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of fear and 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 um we obviously yearn for a return to predictability and the status quo and, and that makes us look for information that helps us do this. So um we've seen various types of misinformation and, and I wouldn't say there is one that has 
um, stood out because they all have the same potential to cause real-world harm. Um, but I think um, it's important for us to one, understand why certain types of misinformation are more popular than a different kind of misinformation. So so I think um seen everything from hoaxes up to the scams, conspiracy theories, but I think it's important to understand what is the environment that makes a certain kind of misinformation uh, more uptick than a different kind of misinformation. Definitely, in terms of desperation and crisis, we need to be even more vigilant as consumers of media information and particularly social media with its unregulated structure. And on that note, I'd like to thank my two guests, Professor Anton Haber and Mr. Lee Whitting, for having joined me in this conversation that is sponsored by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation, Foundation looking at beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. Today's podcast was focusing on social news and fake media and Afropolitans. Be vigilant and thank you and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.